on, Nikki. We need some wheels. I really love it when you guys hear what I mean, as opposed to what I say. I had a very kind and astute listener write to me the other day talking about the Spotify wrapped episode and mentioning how it is a sort of a moment of forced reflection that comes at the end of the year when you're feeling least ready for it. And whether it is Spotify wrapped or whether it is having a birthday or whether it is coming up to Christmas or New Year, it is a time of year when that sort of stuff that sense of forced reflection, it rears its ugly head. It does for me anyway. It really does for me. That's the space that I have been in the last little while. And what I've been thinking about, this might not immediately sound like it's going to make sense, but where these reflections have been taking me is back to a particular period of time around the late 2000s. What comes to mind when I think about that time is all the time I spent sitting on my friend's couch watching the guys play Grand Theft Auto. Nico, can you drive us to Freetown Avenue in Willis? Yeah. And tell this guy we're barring his car. Stevie boy, house tricks. I personally stopped console gaming when the controllers started coming with joysticks. I tried to use those things and I would try to get my character to do something and invariably he would end up just like staring at the sky spinning in a circle. If I can't mash the B button and get my little 2D character to just run faster across a world made out of platforms then I can't do it. I'm out. So when the technology advanced to a point where GTA came out I was in the role of, of somebody who sat and watched. I was the observer. GTA was what they used to call an open world game. I don't know if they still use that terminology or if that's even correct. But the idea is you can do whatever the hell you want. You can go anywhere, do anything, interact with anybody. There were some problematic elements to this. But what my friends like to do were things like they used to like stealing the helicopter, which you could do, and then crashing it into the ocean over and over again. Uh, they used to like swimming with the turtles, which in a game that is mostly about killing people um, was sort of funny. It still kind of amazes me that those sorts of open world games existed. Like how the hell are they even made? How can you, how do programmers do that? I know that they're all built on engines that are built on other engines and it all kind of goes back to, I don't know, Pac-Man or something. But it still completely blows my mind. Grand Theft Auto felt like it had landed from space to me. When I wasn't sitting on my friend's couch watching the guys play GTA and crashing helicopters and swimming with turtles, I was occasionally writing the odd poem. I didn't have any poet mates. I had a couple of poetry books, genuinely probably only two or three at that time. And there would have been ways to access more of both of those things, the poetry mates and the books. But I, I am weird in, in this way. I wasn't very interested in making 
things easy on myself. I did what I tend to do when I pick up a new pastime. I ignored all the instruction and all the help that I could have. And I decided I'm going to figure out how to do this myself. And I'm going to do it exactly how I want to. And I'm not going to listen to anybody else. And I started writing and I had an initial run of what I now understand to be dumb beginner's luck and got accepted into a bunch of things. And then I started getting rejected. I know I've told this story before, bear with me. I started getting rejected a lot. And at that point, I thought, okay, well, I better start to pay a bit more attention to what everybody else is doing. Like maybe I can't just totally make it up myself. Maybe I have to look at what is being published and what are people interested in putting out into the world and what are the rules that everybody else has to go by that I have been up to this point ignoring. Again, I wasn't really asking any specific person for their opinion or their help. I still wasn't reading much of anything or seeking any feedback. I just probably did some kind of cursory, sketchy, like look around a bookshop and read a couple of online journals and decided pretty much in isolation on some rules. This is like circa 2009 we're talking. So I've been writing for a couple of years and I've come up with what I believe are the rules, which will get me to my next run of amazing publication luck. Here's what I came up with. Rule number one, don't ever use the first person. Don't say I. Rule number two, don't be earnest. Don't be serious. Don't be emotional. Be cool. Related to that, rule number three, don't make too much sense. Don't be too straightforward. And the fourth rule, which was related to the first one, don't use the second person. Don't say you. Don't say I. Don't say you. Don't be earnest. Don't make too much sense. These are, again, not rules that anybody said to me. I didn't see that written down anywhere. I didn't uh, get told that by anybody. I just kind of gleaned on my own. Oh, that seems about right. That seems to be what's fashionable. So I guess I'll write that way. It's bizarre now thinking back to that time, the late 2000s, because there are so many examples of big name, influential Australian poets who did all the things that I had decided were not allowed, who absolutely used the first person. The lyric I was a big part of their work. They made a lot of sense. They were very earnest and emotional and open, and they used the second person address all the time. I would have known these poets. I would have, you know, Dorothy Porter is the one that I'm thinking of right now, but there are others. I would have been reading their work. I don't know why I decided that I couldn't do that. But yeah, I decided that for me, I had to write poems that never mentioned the self, any kind of real emotion, and they couldn't make too much syntactic sense. And I started writing that way and I kept writing that way for maybe five years. As you can imagine, I continue to be rejected. For the most part, I was rejected. But the weird part is some of those poems did get picked up in various places. And I started to feel like I was getting somewhere. But the 
real truth of it was that I didn't feel good about that. Because I would be over the poem pretty much as soon as I'd sent it out, let alone when it came back accepted. I mean, I'd have that rush of, oh my God, this is great. I'm going to be published in name of journal or whatever the fuck. But I'd be ambivalent about the poem itself. And I would console myself by saying, well, I guess the editor thinks it's good. So that's, it must be good. And I'm probably wrong. This feeling I have in my stomach is is probably not worth paying attention to. Getting over this weird ass backwards approach to writing was a process I had to go through. Thank God my run rate was still pretty bad in terms of acceptances. So I I did hit another ceiling pretty quickly and found I couldn't get my work published in the next kind of set of journals that I really cared about. I'm still pretty much there. <laughs> I've, been, I've been in this position for a long time. Um, but that that's a good thing. Like that is, that's been useful for me because I've had to accept that the poems I actually liked, that I wrote and that I read, usually broke all those dumb rules that I'd come up with like five years prior. And I started to figure out like, if a poem's going to get rejected or accepted, I need to at least be able to stand behind what I've written. It doesn't actually matter what the editor thinks. I mean, it matters, like it's, it's lovely to be published. It's great to be published. Like that's, you know, that's, that's all I ever want. But like, it's not actually going to be worth it if even by the time the journal is coming out, me, the poet, like I don't stand behind my poem anymore. So I needed to be able to say, I did the best I could. Now, this poem is or isn't going to be published and not some version of, I wrote what I thought they wanted or what I thought was fashionable. And now it is or isn't going to be published. Probably part of the problem here was that for work, I was doing like copywriting and editing and writing I don't know, stuff, stuff that other people wanted written. So I got very good at what I thought was a kind of mind reading. And I still feel like this is kind of a marketable skill, if you'll forgive me for using those words. I still feel like this is something I can do for money, which is to talk to someone and hear them talk about what they want to see written and then kind of spin that straw into gold, I guess, or into fool's gold, something that looks like gold, something that will satisfy them and make them pay me. I can do that. Why go through all this? Why stick your neck out? Why do all this work? Because I need the money. And because I can't do anything else. And because I'm good at it. Sure. But that approach is really, really, really bad. That's a really bad skill for a poet to have. Because it makes me too good at being able to fake it. So I started writing all this down to talk to you about because I've been thinking about one of these rules that I came up with in particular. It's the one that I still feel a bit uncomfortable breaking or really uncomfortable breaking, honestly. It's the rule that I still feel a bit of shame about. I'm saying rule, but that's stupid because it sounds like it comes from somebody else's idea, like totally made up idea that I came up with. 
about what is okay and isn't okay in terms of writing a poem. I've accepted that I need to be able to use the word I in a poem. Like, I can't get anywhere without it. I don't seem to be able to write anything uh, that doesn't use that word. And I also can't help but be a little bit earnest. I mean, you'd know that if you'd <laughs> you listen to this show for any length of time, you know that, you know, I might attempt to be um, ironic and funny and, and uh, you know, keeping emotion at arm's length. But like, I'm, I'm a sucker and, and a total, um, yeah, I'm earnest as hell, really. And I love irony and humor in the poetry of others, but I can really get there myself. Like I've been trying to write this funny poem. <laughs> I've been trying to write a poem that's funny about a dream I had about John Forbes turning up at a poetry reading. I've been trying to make it funny and I can't do it. It keeps turning out sad. And I don't think Forbes would want that. <laughs> so it remains in draft. I also love sense making, even though, again, I really admire genuinely I am not blowing smoke here I admire those who can let go of syntax and straightforward meaning making it's just that when I do it it feels like I'm at risk of confusing and alienating my audience whoever they might be uh, and that's not a risk that I feel like I can take and have a payoff I feel like people just genuinely are confused and alienated instead of like having their brain tickled in a, a really fun way that other people can do. It's not for me. I sometimes think, oh, if I had a bigger vocabulary, I could probably do that, but I don't, so I can't. So it's that second person. It's the you. That's where I feel like I'm still, I'm still struggling to write poems that are exactly how I want them to be, that use that second person address without feeling a bit like it's too much. Like this is, this is not what people want to read. This is, I don't know if it's that it's too exposing or if it's or embarrassing in some way, or if it's, um, maybe it's too honest. There is very often a second person addressing my poems because very often nine times out of 10, probably actually more like 10 times out of 10, I am writing to a specific person. And that's, God, I feel so embarrassed about that. Honey, you are stressed. Oh, goodbye, Florian. No, no. To attempt to unpack this properly, further, in some way, I actually went to my barely ever opened New Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics, which I picked up for 20 bucks. I think it was 20 bucks. Yeah, I swear it was $20 at the Fishwick Salvos. And it has nothing under second person address. It has nothing under first person. It has nothing under address. <laughs> it's a good thing I only paid 20 bucks for this thing. Because honestly, even though I have lugged it, through five different houses, it has never given me any useful information at all. It does have an entry under love poetry, which I will read for you now. Jesus Christ, I don't know how many thousands of pages this thing is. Okay, so love poetry. 
We must ask first whether the language is private and original or formulaic and rhetorical. Is the poet speaking for him or herself or is the voice a persona? The poem, if commissioned by friend or patron, may be a projection into another's adventures or it may be an improvised conflation of real and invented details. A love poem cannot be simplistically read as, as a literal journalistic record of an event or relationship. There is always some fictive reshaping of reality for dramatic or psychological ends. A love poem is secondary rather than primary experience. As an imaginative construction, it invites detached contemplation of the spectacle of sex. Got all that? Yeah, it's, it's a really useful book. Um, improvised conflation of real and invented details. Isn't that all writing? Isn't that everything that was ever written down? And then there is always some fictive reshaping of reality for dramatic or psychological ends. Again, that's everything. The entry goes on. We must be particularly cautious when dealing with controversial forms of eroticism like homosexuality. Poems are unreliable historical evidence about any society. They may reflect the consciousness of only one exceptional person. Furthermore, homoerotic images or fantasies in poetry must not be confused with concrete homosexual practice. We may speak of tastes or tendencies in early poets, but not of sexual orientation. This is a modern idea. That's the second paragraph in the love poetry entry. <laughs> it seems to be saying, don't worry, if you read a gay poem, it might not actually be gay. It might not actually be, <laughs> might not actually be that the poet was gay, so don't worry about it. You're not going to catch gay from the poem. Jesus Christ. So that was completely unhelpful and... Um, and didn't give me any clues as to why I feel so weird about using the second person. There is that famous line of Joan Didion's, that writing is a hostile act. This is part of what I tried to unpick when I was doing an episode many months ago, maybe over a year ago now. I made an episode called Point of View, You Are the Hot X, where I was trying to talk about, you know, as a, as a poet, you get to have the last word a lot of the time. It may be a very ineffectual last word. It may never be read by the person it is directed at, but you get to write it and you get to put it on, a, on the page. And Joan Didion describes this as a hostile act. And when she was asked to explain this, she said, it's hostile in that you're trying to make somebody see something the way you see it, trying to impose your idea, your picture. It's hostile to try to wrench around someone else's mind that way. Quite often you want to tell somebody your dream or nightmare. Well, nobody wants to hear about someone else's dream, good or bad. Nobody wants to walk around with it. The writer is always tricking the reader into listening to their dream. That's where I've been going wrong with that Forbes poem. Nobody wants to hear about my dream. <laughs> I, need, I need to give up on that poem <laughs> like I do so many others. Okay. When I was trying to talk about the hot X poems, I was thinking about how when you know someone is no longer listening to you and no longer paying you any attention, 
when a relationship is over, as the poet or the person with the paper, pen, laptop and keyboard, you get to put everything in the exact order that you prefer. You get to tell the story and you get to rewrite it so that you're the hero or the victim or the innocent bystander. And the subject of these poems, the you, does not get to have any say. I worked with him and he double-crossed me, showed me out to someone I had history with, and nearly got killed. I don't know where the hell I got this concern from. It is so stupid. <laughs> explaining, explaining it to you now, I'm just like, I don't know if this is going to make any sense to anybody. This, this sounds nuts, actually, the more I talk it out. Nobody sat me down and said, here is how you must write. Here is how you must not write. I have no idea what it was that was happening 10 or 15 years ago that spooked me so much. You know, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that we must obey the rules of the game. We can pick the game, Nico Bellic, but we cannot change the rules. I had a whole last 15 minutes that I recorded here about... Uh, Ray Armentrout and Maggie Nelson and how how I realized I didn't actually like Ray Armentrout after reading Versed, which came out in 2010, and how there's this um, quote on the back of it about the neoliberal attachment to feeling, which really confused me. Uh, yeah, I, I had a whole 15 minutes on all that, but I just, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm well over my skis here. <laughs> I don't, I feel very strongly about the point I'm trying to make and yet I cannot make it. I really don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you do. You know that a man's got to do what a man's got to do. What I'm going to do to attempt to end this is to read from Anne Carson's Glass and God, which is rarely a bad idea. I remembered... I was just lying on the couch before, just thinking, like, what the what the hell am I trying to say? And then I remembered that she has this section uh, early on in the book, which is just titled Thou. So basically, the setup of the book is uh, Anne Carson goes home to live with her mum. She's trying to get over somebody, and she's thinking a lot about Emily Bronte. And so this section, Thou is referring to Emily Bronte. It starts like this. The question I am left with is the question of her loneliness. And I prefer to put it off. It is morning. Astonished light is washing over the moor from north to east. I am walking into the light. One way to put off loneliness is to interpose God. Emily had a relationship on this level with someone she calls Thou. She describes thou as awake, like herself, all night, and full of strange power. Thou woos Emily with a voice that comes out of the night wind. Thou and Emily influence one another in the darkness, playing near and far at once. She talks about a sweetness that proved us one. I am uneasy with the compensatory model of female religious experience, and yet there is no question, it would be sweet to have a friend to tell things to at night without the terrible sex price to pay. This is a childish idea, I know. A little further on, she quotes a full 
Well, I guess it's a full poem of Emily Bronte's. It looks like it is one. I'll come when thou art saddest, laid alone in the darkened room, when the mad day's mirth has vanished and the smile of joy is banished, I'll come when the heart's real feeling has entire unbiased sway and my influence over thee stealing, grief deepening, joy congealing shall bear thy soul away. Listen, tis just the hour, the awful time for thee. Dost thou not feel upon thy soul a flood of strange sensations roll, forerunners of a sterner power, heralds of me? There's possibly... I mean, the point that I'm just trying to make, just to be straightforward about it, is like... Uh, I... I made up a bunch of stupid rules about how I should be when I wrote poems and now I don't care about those rules anymore and I'm glad and uh, I wasted a lot of time <laughs> and uh, I suppose you know I could try to do a big like and it's just like playing GTA you know like you can just swim with the turtles if you want or you can crash a helicopter over and over again if you like um, you have total freedom to do whatever the fuck you want. But honestly, like the thing about GTA was like, it was a monumental waste of time. <laughs> like we could have been doing something else, like anything else. It would drive me crazy to sit there and just be like, are we really, are we still playing this game? Are we still playing this game? Oh my God. Uh, and we were, and we did, and years passed. Um, I'm lucky though that those guys are still my friends and they have babies now. Uh, well, one of them has a, no longer a baby and, and one of the others is about to have a baby. And, um, yeah, I'm really lucky that they're still around and they don't play GTA anymore. Thank God. They don't really play computer games anymore, video games anymore. And the other day I, I went around, I messaged one of them and I just said, hey, I feel like I could really use a chat. And uh, and I went around to this friend's house and I kind of outlined all my issues and what I was feeling and blah, 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 blah. And he said, look, you know, what you're trying to do here is to excise a part of your personality that is you. And that's not going to work because... The stuff you're complaining about here is is part of you. He didn't say complaining. <laughs> he didn't say complaining. The stuff you're talking about here is part of you. And if you're trying to avoid it, you're trying to push it away, that's not only is it not going to work, but it's going to make you even more miserable. And you know, I don't um I don't often go to these guys for advice, but he was really on the money with that one. That's the end of a chapter. I can close the book, but a whole lot of my past now, Nico. Thanks. Maybe a clean break is in order. A fresh beginning. Good luck to you. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play it.